0: Crossing Broadcast, Monday or Tuesday, depending on when and where you get your podcasts. I am Russell Joy at Joy on Broad. Today we're taking a slightly different uh, trend here. We're going to be going all around Crossing Broad, uh, starting with the Crossing Broad Sixers beat writer, Kevin Kincaid. Uh, Later we'll be getting to Anthony Sanfilippo and the Flyers and uh, Bob covering the Phillies in some uh, particular order. Um, We're starting out with Kevin. Uh, Before we get going, just a big thank you to our sponsors Carlinos and Amerigas. We'll be getting to them a little bit later in the show. Uh, Kevin, it was an all-star weekend of sorts, a lot to digest, and apparently J.J. Redick is a racist, says some beat reporters. So uh, I think there's plenty to get into. Where do you want to start?
1: Uh well, you know, I'm gonna start by saying hello and uh that it's good to be with you. And uh yeah, that's kinda two things on the opposite side of the spectrum, are they not? Uh allegations of racism on one hand and then the all star game on the other.
0: Yep. It's uh on a weekend that should be all about Joel Embiid in his first what was a an action packed and a in a highest of highs and not really lowest of lows, first tilt in the All Star game, a culmination of a guy who had missed his first two NBA seasons, uh, man, like the the way that that this uh, weekend was setting up for the Sixers was great, with you know the exception of maybe the omission of Ben Simmons from the All Star game, mm-hmm. and uh, you know of course somebody just had to had to lose their mind about what was a an inconsequential and perhaps a tongue tied slip. Do we get the bad out of the way or do we start with
1: the good? No, and let's then come start back with the, where, do, where do you well let's do you start, start with the I mean. I don't know if you want to go back to the Rising Stars game, but I think that Heck kind yes of. Heck yes, I do. Was... <laughs> You're darn right, I do. That no, was funny. I mean, Dario looked totally out of place there, um, you know, with a bunch of guys just running the floor and he's, you know, trying to shoot mid range jump shots and stuff like that. But that's fine. It was nice to see three sixers on the floor for that. And, uh, you yeah, know, they acquitted themselves well. And, uh, you know, it just shows how far the franchise has really come if you think about it. Um You know, I didn't really get to watch a lot of Saturday stuff uh, because I was down at the um, Beer Fest down at Xfinity. Um, But on Sunday then, the All-Star game, I mean, that was uh, was just something cool about seeing Joel out there on the floor with, you know, Giannis and Kevin Durant and LeBron and uh, all these other superstars and to think about really how far he's come in a short period of time. I mean, really, it wasn't that long ago that he was drafted and people were saying – you know, he might be a bust. We may never get to see him play. You know, the the videos of him shooting three-pointers before the games were uh, something akin to what we're doing with Markel Fultz right now, you know. So I just, you know, my takeaway from all of it from the weekend, if you want to boil it down to one simple thing, was – Franchise is turning the corner, and it was just cool to see Joel out there, you know. And uh, it was cool to see, uh, you know, him and Russ kind of going at it a little bit, and him and Paul George at the end there with the block. And uh, I don't know what Mike D'Antoni's doing, taking uh, Joel and Embiid out uh, for a defensive possession at the end of the game. Not like the game matters at all, but uh, that should pretty much tell you all you need to know about uh, his coaching and probably why the Warriors will will come out of the West. Yeah, I mean, what, Ooh, see, now I I do think there
0: is a case to be made for Houston, but we'll we'll swing back around to that in a minute. Although, if uh, D'Antoni's making calls like he did, as you alluded to, the uh, the Embiid not playing your best rim protector, one of your only bigs on that team, not playing the last defensive possession. I know in the All-Star know, ha- game, know when your All Star game you have
1: I know how do you how do you mess up the coaching in the All Star game when you have like every available tool that you could ever need on your team? But and
0: it's it's also yeah. inexcusable because he was on the bench. With Brett Brown, like through Joel's development, you know, the latter end of Joel's development. <laughs> right. So like that, that's always one of the things, too, is like I don't expect Dwayne Casey to know how to coach like Jalen Brown, uh, even though like he Correct. wasn't in he wasn't in that game. But like I don't expect Dwayne Casey to know the ins and outs of like Bradley Beal's game or like where to best position Al Horford. But yeah, like Jesus, yeah. Antonio you were the assistant coach. You were like the associate head coach for a year. <laughs> Brian Colangelo brought you in to babysit Brett Brown and let you and like let him know if he's a real coach. And you didn't know what to do with maybe the best big man in the game. I'll say uh, that the All
1: Star games uh, it started very very slow from Fergie from the blackout, for the oh, uh, black, from the bare naked ladies to Fergie to yo uh, bare naked ladies.
0: Art. Bare Naked Ladies, I didn't know were Canadian, and they represented well. I love a good rendition of O Canada. I'm a hockey fan, like I, I'm half tempted to sing it myself. But oh
1: yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well Fergie. there are worse. There are worse things, look. man. I mean, look like uh, you know, Bare Naked Ladies might not hit uh, the millennial uh, NBA fan demographic that you're looking for in 2018, but I think that's a kind of a, a safe uh kind of john fergie i mean the, the they're, they're uh, poor also canadian- woman
0: like canadians are safe oh yeah yeah, yeah you never sure. like yeah. when do you ever hear that it, the only time i've seen the canadian national anthem screwed up was in the movie goon where the uh the girl was so bad that the announcer said uh oh god what was it he was like that was a disgrace to our nation my <laughs> grandfather didn't fight the nazis
1: and we're off uh,
0: like seriously
1: no, I, I, you, I, I, you can't
0: screw up oh canada but
1: it is a Man. very safe. It is a very safe natural anthem. Yeah,
0: Fergie went out and sang like she was in a smoky cabaret, like with empty bottles of bourbon
1: shattered on the floor. What the? He- what was that? Well, I think she was trying to do. Was she trying to pay homage to Marvin Gaye there? It, it, um, in some way, shape, or form, it was a little bit of like Marvin Gaye and Amy Winehouse meets uh Marilyn Monroe doing the uh sexy happy Mr. birthday oh yeah uh Mr. President, Mr. President. whatever the hell that yeah that was before uh, my time but I've seen the videos oh uh God. I don't know it was just it strange so but bad. like but luckily it got, you know as the all-star game went on they played like a little bit of defense at the end and uh whatever like 10 minutes or eight to 10 minutes you get in the fourth quarter there is worth watching but yeah, at the end of the day I mean it's just it's it is what it is it, Joel Embiid Ben Simmons, Darius Sarch got through it unscathed, and nobody was injured, and they quitted themselves well, and it was a good marketing and uh, showcase opportunity for the franchise. So you get them back here, and you you get on with the season. I think that's where I'm going with it, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I like to uh, I like to make sure that our listeners are well educated in everything that happens. So let's I really quick to touch on. Yeah, I think it is important to point out the progression of what Joel went through, and you know a- as well as what Sarch and uh, and Simmons got to experience that Rising Stars game on Friday is essentially what the All-Star game has always been up until this year. I think there was a uh, definite shift in the way that that game was at least approached by some of the stars. The Friday night game was a 155-124 drubbing that the world gave to the U.S. Um, Simmons nearly notched a triple-double. He had 11 points, 13 assists, and 6 rebounds. Uh, If there was a guy, I think, who looked the most polished that didn't look like he belonged in that game, it was probably Ben Simmons. Um, one of the other guys that I think would be kind of safe to say as much as I hate it, Jalen Brown has, I think, very much, uh, very far outperformed what anybody expected him to be in a draft that, uh, many people said around the trade deadline, uh, was a pick that had been offered for Nerlens Noel or for Jaleel Okafor, depending on who you believe. And, uh, the fact that now Jalen Brown is, is starting to put it together. I might just be a little bit gun shy in, uh, in, Putting him down too much because I played a game of two K the other night. My buddy dropped sixty points on me with Jalen Brown. Mm. I don't think Jalen Brown's ever done that in his life. I don't think he could play against my two year old and score sixty points, but it happened. I digress. Uh, that game, I found kind of fascinating because you can just see the level that that Ben is at compared to the other first and second year players. It's funny, you know, the TNT uh um, info session that was, or like the infographic that was on. Uh, the uh, The Fios guide said like Lonzo Ball, Ben Simmons, and I forget who the third player was, but it was somebody else who wasn't playing. Uh, I thought it wasn't false, thankfully, but uh, mm-hmm. it it was like Lonzo Ball, Ben Simmons, and someone else lead their teams. I'm like Lonzo Ball doesn't even lead his own team. He's not even the best rookie on his team. He's only on that team because he was the second overall pick in the draft. Have we had a year where there's been a draft where neither of the top two picks have either played well or or been you know even remotely dominant. I can't think of a year. Mm. Um Ben goes out has a good game. Dario, uh kind of to your point, Dario looked good. Um he was he was hitting some threes. He went four for seven from three. Um he's kind of carrying that hot shooting that he finished the uh, pre all star break with. He had eighteen points, five assists. Joel Embiid only got in the game for nine minutes, but admittedly he even came out and said that uh, he really wasn't out there for that game. He, he wanted to make an appearance. He wanted to go out Saturday night for the skills challenge where he advanced to the uh, semifinal of the was it? No, it was the final, the final of the <laughs> big men, like, yeah, the semifinal cheated. overall. <laughs> he didn't cheat. So, OK, uh, well, let's I, let's know. fast forward to that. So Joel goes out. He's up against uh, Laurie Markkinen, who I mean, I remember back when we did the uh, uh, Kyle and I did the live um, draft party. That was the trade that went down that netted uh, Zach Levine in that pick mm-hmm. to Chicago for Jimmy Butler. And we were like, man, Laurie Markkinen better be good. And he's he's been better than advertised. But Joel goes out. You have three balls to throw through the uh, through the passing target. And instead of uh, you know trying three legitimate passes, Joel goes out and flicks one of them because it's either you have to complete the pass through the target or get through all three balls, which they, they pointed out well after the fact. But it was crafty. I don't know mm. if I would say that it was cheating. I think it's it's typical of, of what you would expect from Joel at this point. Whatever it is, it's fun. fun.
1: Whatever it is, it's fun and it's entertaining, you know? And so, like, hopefully the takeaway from all that is that people were, uh, at least got something out of it if fans liked it and enjoyed it. You know, we were talking about it on the last podcast. You know, what is the All-Star Weekend to you? You know, it's a showcase. It's a marketing opportunity. It's kind of a time to take a take a break and celebrate the, the game and celebrate the stars of the game. And, uh i mean i think if you look at it that way i think they've they hit on all those things you know it's it's cool to see joel participate in all three of those things and you know the goofiness aside i mean there's some cool moments on uh on friday saturday and sunday so i mean i think all of it was a win you know i i don't think there's much uh much else to say beyond that that other than the guys played well and i think sixers fans should be should be happy with uh, what they saw you know
0: yeah, and, and when we get to the uh, actual All-Star game itself, Joel went out, he played for 20 minutes, 19 points, 8 rebounds, 2 blocks, uh, both of which you already you know had brought up. The one on Russ where he goes out, He uh, I tweeted it out, the video of him draining a rainbow three, going right down the court, and Russ decides to go in on him, and uh, I guess he was going to go up for a dunk, and Joel just erased it away. I, I was waiting for the, McKen- the Dikembe Mutombo finger wag. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It was just awesome. I mean... They they even like it was funny because it was as if TNT had actually done their homework for a change. I think Reggie Miller actually knew what was going on for the first time, maybe all year, uh, where they talked about, you know, the, the back and forth that Joel and, and Russ had in the game in Philly that carried over and, you know, the waving goodbye to one another. And look, Joel had been interviewed as well and, and said that, you know, he respects Russ Westbrook as a competitor, but he's not going to let anything go, you know, too easy. Um But, my God, like, the end of the game, you've got Paul George, you've got Joel on an island. Joel and and LeBron had matched up a few times, and Joel and KD had matched up a few times, which was really cool. That's, I think, maybe the the best part of uh, seeing them blow up the East versus West concept is just getting to see so many unique matchups. But Joel goes on an island, blocks Paul George... And then, so of course, you know, why wouldn't Mike D'Antoni pull him from the last, the last uh, <laughs> possession? It's not even like it was an offensive possession where you wanted a better three point shooter. That that Steph team was absolutely locked and loaded. My conspiracy theory thought is that Joel uh, was pulled, or yeah, Joel was pulled on the defensive possession because it was a tie game, and uh, D'Antoni wanted them to go to the hoop for two, knowing that he had so many lights out three point shooters that he wanted a buzzer beater three. Um, that's my that's my my theory. They didn't want it to go to no, OT. yeah they wanted it to just be a uh, you know a buzzer beater three and it and it kind of ends with Steph jumping around and we talk about how the game has shifted to bigs who can shoot threes and how the three point shot is legit and how they should think about instituting the four- point shot. These are all things that I don't know I, I think are you know they're interesting reddit conversations. I don't know how legit it's gonna be. I don't know they were talking about a four point shot maybe in next year's game. But I love the lack of the East and West. I love the fantasy teams, and I do hope that somebody puts their big boy pants on next year and actually lets it be televised. But that's yeah. just me.
1: No, I agree with you. Um, do you want to do uh do you want to get into the Reddick stuff?
0: Yeah, so JJ Reddick, um no one knew he was a racist, but you know, depending on what beat writer you follow on Twitter, it would appear he's a racist. Where do you uh where do you fall in here, Kevin?
1: Uh yeah, I mean when you watch the video it just looks like a if- I mean, well, first of all, context for people, right? Um, the, the This is video that was... Uh, it, it's, it's outsourced. It's uh, commissioned by a company called Tencent, um, and they have the agreement with the NBA to share their content in China, right? So mm-hmm. they went around and they did a video where they just shot some guys in the locker room and asked them to say, hey, can you we're doing like a video to help uh, or to uh, say happy Chinese new year, you know, to our people in China. Right. So the NBA, like the individual you know, NBA TV or who, whoever's in the locker room will say, Hey, we need you to read this thing or say this thing into the camera. Right. so JJ's, this clip appears then with all these players sort of, uh, melded together saying happy Chinese new year. Some of them are speaking in Chinese that they were prompted. They were given and others are just saying it in English and it's translated. And Reddick's, um, comes up about halfway through and he says i just wanted to wish all the nba blank fans in china a very happy chinese new year uh you know a um, c word that you use uh to describe asians and um we're sitting here De- like, the- in a derogatory manner a derogatory it sounded manner.
0: like he was trying to say i think right he was trying to say wish all the chinese fans but partway through that decided that he didn't want to say chinese fans he wanted to say fans in china
1: yeah and so and, he stumbled yeah. so he stumbled over it and made it sound like he and he, like he he voiced this word that's a racial slur towards asian people and so he came out then on uh on on sunday or no it was uh yeah sunday afternoon And he said, I just saw a video that's being circulated of me wishing a Happy New Year to NBA fans in China. Clearly, I was tongue-tied, is the word I purportedly said is not in my vocabulary. I'm disappointed that anyone would think I would use that word. Love and respect our fans in China. People kind of thought that was like a non-apology, kind of like a um, didn't like do it for him, I guess. So he he came out later that night, um, like 11 o'clock, 11.30 Sunday night, and he said, Uh, something, something longer. He said to our NBA fans in China and everybody celebrating the Chinese new year, I want to sincerely apologize to anyone I may have offended. After a recent game, I was asked by the NBA and Tencent to record a video wishing our NBA fans in China a happy new year. I was glad to do it. I was intending to say NBA Chinese fans, but it sounded weird in my mind. So I changed it mid sentence to NBA fans in China, which is what you just mentioned, Russ. It came out the wrong way. At the time we recorded it, no one in the room, not Tencent, not the 76ers PR team, and certainly not myself, heard the word that I purported uh, to say. And most of the oh, – I'm sorry, I lost the image here um, – had I known it sounded anything like that, I would have been mortified and recorded the greeting over again. Uh, it's not a word in my vocabulary, but I now understand how it sounds on the video. It's not who I am as a person, a player, a husband, and a father. I've been fortunate to play in two NBA global games in China in 2007 and 2015. I love the experience, the culture, the history, and most of all the people, so I ask your forgiveness. Um, I'm sorry for upsetting anybody. So, I mean, that that's his explanation there. I mean, that... Uh, that makes sense to me because I can't imagine anybody, let alone JJ Reddick of all people, would look directly into a camera and use a racial slur. Um, it was obviously done and after the after the, game. And the fact that the
0: NBA would have promoted it, the Sixers would have promoted it. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I wonder if that's the part was... that gets me the most. Like, is it is it just that it automatically blasts out? Like, when I mean, I I don't know. Is this a dirty secret to air in public? But like, when when any of us go to post anything to the website, like it gets sent out through all of the the um, crossing broad um, social media channels. Mm-hmm. So, like, where somebody like me, when I first got involved with the podcast and everything, when when I would see what I thought was Kyle tweeting everything out and wasn't responding to my message in Slack, I was like, this is kind of rude. But like, no, that's just the way that things work. Like, I don't know if it's just a situation where the NBA just kind of gave carte blanche to the producer or whoever was editing the video and said, all right, you're reliable enough. Like, how could they possibly screw it up? It's not like they're going to let, you know, somebody drop a racial slur in the middle of a video wishing a happy Chinese New Year. No. I mean, somebody's got to watch
1: it, The question is, yeah, how does this get out in the first place? I mean, so all of the different interviews are cobbled together and then somebody edits them all together and they present it uh, for the Chinese audience, you know? Um, and if you watch J.J. Reddick's specific uh, part, there's like a dissolve in between, like in the middle of a sentence. So like a dissolve for people who don't like know editing or TV or whatever. It's just one way to make a piece of video transition to another piece of video. So if, Russ, you were saying one sentence and I had to edit something out of the middle of it, I would cut that out. And then I'd put a transition in between, like a dissolve, because I can't like, for example, I can't go from you having your mouth opened and your eyes closed to having your mouth closed and your eyes open, right? That's what we call a jump yep. jump cut in the industry because it looks weird. And when I watch the video, there's a dissolve that's put like right in between his thing. So it looked like somebody took one sentence and spliced it into another sentence, or it looks like they took the middle out of it and then edited it together. And I don't know why that was allowed to, to go through, or if it was somebody who didn't have a grasp of the language um, who was tra- who was um, doing the captioning or the editing or something like that and didn't, like, see it or something like that. But I don't know how that gets through the layers of people who should be looking at this. And I know that even, like, stuff I write for Crossing Broad, I read it, like, four times or five times before I even post it, you know? So, like, how, how – if, if a sports blog has that kind of uh, – uh, I, I hesitate to use the word oversight, but you know what I mean. Like, if we're double-checking and triple-checking our stuff, then how does a professional thing like that – end up being that messed up you know it's inexplicable to me yep totally
0: agree it's inexcusable um I, I I'm kind of at a loss like I, I listen to JJ's podcast if you listen to him well-spoken guy uh, very articulate and is and is I guess by all accounts like a really well thought out guy he's he's got his opinions he expresses them I don't know concisely and and succinctly and I, I don't know like the idea of all people for like, if, if uh, I don't want to like throw out just a random name, all right, I won't throw out a name, but if if any other player on the team had said something that you know came off the wrong way, uh, I don't know, like maybe it's it's plausible, uh, a guy that doesn't usually get in front of the mic all that much, uh, I don't know, like Covington's not interviewed much, I don't know if I've ever heard. Um, uh, uh like Amir Johnson talk. If one of them got tongue tied it'd be like, alright, well they might not be in front of the mic all that much. It's entirely possible that nerves get you, but like JJ is a pro. JJ's a guy who's done podcasts before. He's a guy who like is interviewing M. Night Shyamalan. Like I don't I don't think of all the people on this team, uh and like <sighs> I don't know. I
1: don't know where I was going with that. No, I, mean, I, had I know what thought, you're saying. But like, I, he's a he's, veteran he's, guy who does a lot of speaking. He's used to be in front of the mic. It's I, I don't. And like I said, uh, if anybody's stupid enough to look directly into a camera and use a racial slur, then <laughs> you know that. Especially here we here, in, yeah. here we are in 2018.
0: Yeah, then that would what, say it all. What better way to uh, you know I raise your stock than to say racial slurs, yeah. stare down the camera, and just let one fly? Yeah, this
1: is not us giving him a free pass or anything like that. I, I just find it highly, highly doubtful that JJ Redick is racist against Asian people you know so I think like especially in a world where we're quick to condemn everybody right away and say that this guy's this this guy's that and this guy has to be fired and this has to happen like people just need to take a step back and say listen you know I'm sure it was just an accident I'm sure he didn't mean to say it and somebody might have messed up something on on the other end you know
0: yeah that's why I just you know I I think that's why there's always a distrust that happens between players and media though is like how many of your colleagues that are down on the beat decided to write up an article almost immediately calling for, like, a, a stronger apology? Like, who is that appealing to? Is that just appealing to a certain subsection of uh, or cross-section of, of uh, Twitter? Like, I, I don't get it. I don't know. I mean, I, feel I don't like, know. I'm I feel not, like a benefit yeah. of the doubt is, like, a, a kind of important thing here. Like, the way the same way that when Redick was, uh, you know, cursing about, you know, Markel Fultz only being a 19-year-old, you went and, and you know— led or sparked the uh the question that got the quote out of him about it like i don't understand why that couldn't have just been something that you sit on for a couple days you try to reach out to the player you reach out to the team and then when you have media availability the next time Somebody asks him the idea that, like, somebody should go and write up an article about how, like, Reddick says racial slur. How will the team respond? Like, I don't get that. Yeah, I mean, I don't like I don't it know. And I don't, and I, I don't know yeah. who's I don't know who's clicking on it. Like,
1: that's what I don't. get. I can't. I mean, yeah, I can't speak for, like, what other people wrote or whatever. We waited to do it until this morning. And I'm, I'm glad we did because he issued the other thing, you know, late at night. Um, so I don't know. I just I didn't really want to get too into the weeds with the with the article that I wrote for the site and i just figured okay here's what happened you know here was his thing uh have added in the comments section of all places you know so uh that was just kind of the approach to i don't obviously i don't think the guy's a racist you know all right so to recap jj's not
0: a racist we think joel Embiid is a true all-star ben simmons will be an all-star next year
1: yeah i think that's pretty much yeah i think you got it right there
0: joel was interviewed after the game by tnt and said that next year ben should get here And he also went on to say that Markel is coming along pretty soon. So uh, we are back on Fultz alert. We're on the Fultz watch. And uh, a lot of good things coming up for the Sixers. We recapped this, I think, last week, maybe last Friday. Yeah, Uh, we we went deep deep
1: down the uh, Fultz rabbit hole.
0: The Fultz Rabbit Hole, if you didn't go back and listen to it, I think it came out a little bit late. Go back and listen to that, as well as we looked forward to, I don't know, like the next month's worth of games. It is a very favorable stretch coming up for your team, your town, your Philadelphia 76ers. By the way, Goran Dragic, who, uh, you know, was picked over Ben Simmons, man, the stat line that he uh, came out with in the All-Star game for his, uh, what was he, the first Slovenian player in NBA history to make an All-Star team, I, you know... Say say what you want about if Ben Simmons deserved to be in the All Star game or not, but uh, man, I I don't know if Ben could have replicated those two points, three ba- three rebounds, and one assist that uh, yeah. That Dragutin. Listen, man, if you can
1: uh, if you can name me the capital of Slovenia without googling it, I will. Uh, I'll quit crossing broad forever, and I'll give you my entire salary for this year. Ooh, I love that, but no, I I I don't know. It's uh, Ljubljana. Is how you say it. Wow. Never been there, but I've heard it's uh, I've heard it's really nice this time of the year. To quote uh, the great Tony Bruno, that's some really great Slovenian knowledge out of you.
0: <laughs> 610-632-0975. Tony's
1: a man. I love Tony. He's a good guy. He does some good stuff. Yeah, I liked anyway. him and Harry back in the day. And then, of course, in Philly radio, all uh, all good things must come to an end after, like, you know, wait in, in way too short order, you know? and then typically
0: switch to the other station. Well, anyway, Kevin, thanks for joining. Um, We will talk to you again soon. A big thank you to our sponsor, Amerigas. Amerigas, it's available at over 55,000 locations across the country, locally at Home Depot and 7-Eleven. There is a uh, a big giveaway on crossingbroad.com backslash Amerigas. All you have to do is go to that link crossingbroad.com backslash amerigas enter your your name and an email and i believe a zip code and you'll be entered to win a prize package of five hundred dollars worth of amerigas and crossing broad things it's three hundred dollars worth of amerigas equipment including um, a heat lamp there's some other uh, tailgating accessories some pretty cool stuff that you should check out and two hundred dollars to the crossing broad uh store which is good and bad it's good because there's some great designs, including two of the Jason Kelsey designs, which I've been packing for most of the day. My wife and I went to uh, Kyle's house today where uh, we spent five hours packing shirts for, uh, for your pleasure. So if you win this uh, this contest at Ameri- uh, con- crossingbroad.com backslash Amerigas uh, and enter to win, you can also on social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you want, take a picture of yourself with uh, an Amerigas tank in maybe the uh, the greatest pose that you can find, the greatest location you can find, an Amerigas picture with the hashtag showyourtank. Or, again, crossingbroad.com Amerigas, Enter to win lots of stuff, including money to the Crossing Broad store that will lead to Kyle dislo- dislocating possibly another disc in his back. It was great today. Uh, speaking of great things, we've got Anthony Sanfilippo here uh to talk about what may go down as a great move or not uh Flyers acquiring Peter Masaryk from uh is it, did I say that right Peter Masaryk? from uh No,
2: it's Mrazik.
0: Morazic. Jeez. Yes. Uh from the Detroit Red Wings, uh Dave Hakstol once again runs a goalie into the ground and Brian Elliott, Michael Nyork gets hurt in a uh, a very I would I would say a resounding win over the uh New York Rangers over the weekend. And uh that led to our, us having our lion heart, if you will, uh, hmm. in goal, and now the Flyers went out and they traded. What is it? A third and a fourth round pick. Anthony, break it down for us.
2: Yeah, it's so it's really not it's really not anything much more than a fourth round pick at this point. Um, so Detroit gets a fourth rounder, uh, and it's interesting because when they they started talking last week uh, when Elliot when it was first announced that Elliot got hurt, uh, the Flyers and Red Wings were talking, and the Red Wings wanted a third round pick for Morazic and Hextall said no uh, and started looking around. He was, he sent Dave Brown, um, his pro scout up Buffalo, uh, to look at the goalies up there, Robin Lehner and, uh, dad Johnson, and even, uh, into Toronto to look at the, uh, Marley's and the AHL, the Maple Leafs farm team, to take a look at Calvin Pickard. Um, but what ended up happening was, uh, Neuver gets hurt on Sunday, um, yesterday. And, uh, it, it the Flyers' urgency for a goalie uh, became even that much more uh, paramount, and so uh, went back to Detroit. And uh, the Red Wings were willing to do to go uh, around lower uh, with stipulations. And so the stipulations are: if, if if the Flyers make the playoffs and Mrazek wins five games for the Flyers in the regular season, um, then the fourth becomes the third. So that's, that's realistic at this point um, with Neuver's injury that this actually does become a third-round pick. Now, if the Flyers are able to reach the conference finals and Morazic is their goalie, pretty much their starting goalie in the playoffs, if he wins six games or more in the playoffs and the Flyers reach the conference finals, then it becomes a second-round pick next year. So so there are some uh, triggers that can make the pick higher than a fourth-rounder. Um, I think it ultimately becomes, will, will become a third, but I don't, I'm not so certain it goes beyond that, although I guess it is possible. Now, the other thing is, is there's a second conditional pick. It's a 2019 third-rounder, but that only comes into play if the Flyers re-sign Morazic after this season. He is a restricted free agent. And he is making four million dollars this year. Now, part of this deal is the Red Wings are willing to take on fifty percent of that salary. So the Red Wings are paying, um, uh, well, what the balance of for the remainder of the season uh, of half of, of what's left. So, but the, the cap hit for the Flyers will only be two million. Um, but Noivare had to be put on injured reserve in order to have a roster spot for Morazik to be there. So. Um, but for now, it's Mrazic and Alex Lyon. Um, I, I, question is, how good of a move is this? I don't know. Mrazic um, at one time was was thought to be uh, the, the, the guy for the Red Wings, the up-and-coming prospect, and then uh, he was a backup to Jimmy Howard and kind of stole his job last year, and now he's a backup again. He's still only 26, but I, I kind of felt like Detroit was – really eager to move on from him. There had been some talk that he's a little bit of a uh, locker room lawyer kind of thing. And, uh, that's not always a, a, the greatest thing in the world, but we've had many of those in the Flyers history in, in their, in their locker room, especially goalies. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But, I mean, I think ultimately Russ Brian Elliott is still going to be the Flyers goalie in the playoffs. Um, so I don't really think it, it. this really has an opportunity to jump to that second-round pick unless Elliott re-injures himself again, and Mrazek has to be the guy. Um, but I definitely think that the Flyers looked at this and said, here is a guy who's in the NHL, has played decently so far this season, um, and that we could at least have him get us through for much of the next month. And, and that's kind of where it's at. So I, I don't – I mean – Flyer Twitter can be all ecstatic and crazy, excited about this. I-, I would temper that just a little bit. The guy's an okay goalie, not anything, uh, not much of an improvement over what you already had here.
0: So so you would essentially equate what, uh, I'm going to screw this name up all the time, Mirazik. You got right. it right. You got it yeah, right. Yeah, all right. So, uh, so you would essentially equate what Mrazik is to what Brian Elliott is when healthy. Like, if 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 you start this season with Mrazik instead of Brian Elliott, are they in a similar position?
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a good good question. I mean, I guess technically, uh, and when I say technically, I mean the, the way you the way you play the game. Technically, um, yeah, I mean I think that they're very similar in in that vein. I think the difference is is like, is that um, Elliott's a real team first guy he's a real gamer he's a guy that guys want to play for uh, and play in front of and and there's a lot of times when you have goalies who are a little bit of an enigma I mean you remember what it was like with Briz um humongous and, big yes yeah, so you remember what it was like with him and the guys in the locker room didn't always want to you know play for that guy and, and you know even for our Slightly older fans. Um, we're going back to like Roman Cechmonic, you know, uh, about 17, 18 years ago. It was the same thing. Guy put up great numbers, but the guys in the locker room didn't particularly like playing in front of him. There's a lot to be said for that in hockey. It's not something that can really be measured statistically. It, it, it's more of a of an emotional thing. It's more of, you know, glue. I mean, we always hear about glue guys in sports. And you, you always want a goalie to be somebody that the team likes playing for. And just from, you know, again, I don't know Peter Morazic from Adam, so I can't sit here and tell you that this is 100% certainty, but when reports start getting out that, that he's not the the most well-liked guy in the locker room, it makes you wonder just how he's going to fit coming into a team that is, that is pushing to make the playoffs at this point.
0: Great. A locker room fracturing goalie. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) So, so let me get this straight. Mrazek is going to make theoretically, cap hit wise, uh, were it not for the split salary, he would actually be the highest compensated goalie on the roster. But he's not head and shoulders above anybody that they have on the roster. Let's get let's get one thing out of the way. So for those who were watching, or even those who weren't watching the uh, the NBC game on Sunday when the the Flyers, it was funny. We had a a couple of our of our best couple friends over um, to watch the the guy is a a Rangers fan so now I guess by extension his wife is as well and we went into this game just saying there's no way the Flyers win it's Henrik Lundqvist it's at Madison Square Garden the only time I feel like the Flyers have ever beaten the Rangers with uh, um, Lundqvist is when Lundqvist is out and you've got like Marty Buran backing him up or something and like that's the Flyers only shot against the Rangers. Well. Alex Lyon ends up having to come in and spot duty and actually did a pretty good job, which led to like doc Emmerich and crew, you know, kind of, uh, I I don't know the NBA side of things. We're just used to the national guys, not knowing anything about anyone on the team, like not named Joel Embiid or Ben Simmons, uh, doc Emmerich and crew seemed pretty high on how Alex Lyon had played in that game, but I don't really know what their knowledge of him outside of the, uh, the fact that he was an emergency call up. Uh, is Alex Lyon a guy that you could theoretically lean on for a few games? Will Dave Hextall trust him with a spot start more than he trusted Michael Neuvert, you know, when Brian Elliott was healthy?
2: Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because we asked um, Hextall this uh, when Elliott got hurt last week, and Hextall said, listen, Alex Lyon's going to have to give us some minutes here. Now the trade deadline is still six days away. Um, it's it's possible that the Flyers even go out and, you know, the guys that they were looking at up in Buffalo, for example, um, like a Chad Johnson, who is the backup goalie to, on the worst team in the conference, um, you might be able to get him for like a, a seventh round pick or, or, a, or even a conditional seventh round pick for that matter. So I wouldn't be surprised if he tries to get another veteran in here. I think ultimately that will be determined by just exactly how injured Michael Neuver really is. Uh, I'm hearing it's a groin pull, um, which for a goalie is, 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 a, is a, not a good injury. So, um, And knowing how Neuver is with, when it comes to injuries, he's usually a slow-to-recover kind of guy. Um, So it wouldn't surprise me if they do go out and get somebody else by next Monday. But that doesn't necessarily mean Alex Lyon won't get a chance here in the next couple of games to really get a a chance to play. He actually might play tomorrow night. Um, I I find it it really kind of hard to to say you're going to make a trade for Mrazek at 10 o'clock on Monday night and then come in tomorrow morning and say, yep, you're playing. You know, when the guy's got to travel into town and, and everything else. So um, I think you might see Lyon tomorrow and then Mrazek later this week. Um, but uh, I don't necessarily know if you can trust Alex Lyon to be a guy at this juncture to get you into the playoffs. There's, these games are too important. They're too close. Standings are too tight. I think that Alex Lyon has given you what he's given you, and you got to be happy for what he's given you, and 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 you got to hope to find real NHL ready talent if you expect to make it to the postseason.
0: So let's just uh, dispel the notion that Carter Hart, the the prized goaltender prospect in the organization, uh, could possibly see some time this year. Explain to the people why it's
2: it's not even a possibility. Yeah, no, it's not. So when you're in junior hockey. OK, so if the player like, for example, Nolan Patrick, OK, he was able to he's a, he's junior age. He's uh, 18 years old or 19 years old now, um, just like Carter Hart. Um, so if he weren't on the Flyers, he would have to be playing in the Canadian Junior League. He couldn't play in the American Hockey League. You have to be 20 years old uh, to be able to play in play pro. So th- it's it's how the juniors keep their leagues going. Basically, they keep. The, the upcoming prospects playing there for an extra year or two. Um, so an NHL team has nine games to decide. Uh, it, they got to keep the player, uh, a junior player on their roster out of training camp. And then they have to make a decision after nine games played, will they send them back to junior or will they keep them? If they keep them, they have to keep them on the roster the whole year. They can't, they, they can't send him down. They have, he has to be on the roster the whole year. But if you send him back to junior, then you cannot recall him until after the junior season is over. Um, so Carter Hart was sent down back in training camp. So he was never a, a possibility. His team is playing really well in Everett. Um, so they can, he cannot be recalled to the Flyers until Everett's season is over. But it's very likely that Everett's going to go far in the Western Hockey League playoffs um, and very well could end up in the Memorial Cup finals, um, in which case the Flyers would have no prayer of bringing him up because the regular season will be over by that point. All
0: right. What right. Wasn't that something, the, the nine-game junior limit, was that something that happened recently, like in the last few years? Was that Ghost? Was it Provorov? I feel like this was discussed with with yeah, one other I don't, I mean, I don't it, remember who it was or, it was, or was, it was it the Nolan Patrick argument this year about making the roster or not? I, yeah, I really it, can't remember, but
2: it it, it, it comes up with, uh, I mean, would Provorov last year certainly fit the fit that bill. Um, it, it comes up every time you have a a kid who's a teenager and you're debating whether or not they should play, um, it, directly in the NHL or if they should go back to junior junior hockey. Um, so, you know, th- 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 was there a possibility that he could have come up on, like, an emergency recall? So let's just say they don't trade for Morazic, for example. Let's just say Alex Lyon gets hurt, okay? Now that leaves you with one guy in the minors, Dustin Tokarski, who's on your uh, 50, 50-man roster, who could have been called up, but then you will not even have a backup. So at that point, the Flyers would technically be allowed to call up, if they wanted to, Carter Hart, but he could only stay with the team for two games before he has to go back down. So it basically just buys time for the Flyers to get another goalie. Um, so that's the, But that's really the only way a junior hockey player can come up on an emergency basis. But then you have to give them right back. All right, got it.
0: Um, so earlier you mentioned veterans. I just have a, a – I guess this is a, a, a thought that I've had from a distance – and you're really the first person that, that I think uh, I've talked to in a while that understands hockey, so this is this is <laughs> u- very useful. Um, okay. When Ron Hextall and Dave Hackstall talk about veterans and veteran leadership, it seems like that is a tag they only use on guys like Yori Letera and, and Valtteri Philpula. You don't hear them talk about the veteran leadership that Claude Giroux or Wayne Simmons or Jake Voracek bring to the table. It seems like that is a, a a tag that they use as a way to say this guy has played NHL minutes and he kind of sucks, but he's also a decent role model for the other players. Now, I don't know if that's just me, you know, trying to read between the lines. I don't know if it's me uh, hating Latera so much that, you know, when he scored against the Rangers and so did Manning and so did McDonald that I ended up cursing in my living room that uh you know it was my worst nightmare of of that trifecta scoring but it, is that something that gets picked up on when when you're on the beat like am i am i misunderstanding this or does it like am i on to something
2: no it's so you're not you're not misunderstanding it but i think that what ends up happening is is that um, for many many years coaches and general managers have used coach speak and general manager speak in, in, in th- this these descriptions fit, the, fit that to a T, and they've been able to get away with it, um, and it's just kind of ingrained in them. But we now live in a day and age where everyone breaks down every word, every syllable of every word that is being said, and they're really quickly ready to say BS to that. Um, and we're also in a day and age where everybody thinks that because... They have access to more statistical measurements uh, and analytics that now everybody can be a general manager and tell the general manager how terrible the job he's doing or tell the coach how terrible the job he's doing. Um, and, And there is so much more that kind of plays into things than, than really ever meets the eye publicly. And it's not like, you know, I, I know as writers, we get grief all the time that, you know, oh, we're idiots because we don't ask this question or we're idiots because we don't say this about the situation. And, and you know, there are times when I think it's it's warranted, but there are a lot of times where it's not because it's, it's a lot different when you have to show your face in that locker room and talk to these guys every day and say to them, you know, and, and talk to them about what's going on. Are you wrong to say Yuri Letera stinks and Dale Weiss stinks and Brandon Manning stinks? Not at all. Not at all. You're 100% correct with that. Are you, are you wrong to say, well, maybe we should have the kids play instead? Here's where there's a, here's where there's a, a gray area. Because adjusting at the age of 19 or 20 years old to being – a wealthy professional athlete living on your own in a big market city with all of the potential pitfalls that come with that. And we saw it for years with the young guys that the Flyers had who couldn't help themselves but partying in, in Old City. Um, sometimes you, you, you got to learn how to be an adult a little bit sooner than maybe you should have you got to remember a lot of these guys were sheltered and living with what they call billet families um, who are, you know, families who are taking in hockey players because they're living away from home at age 16 and 15. And they're brought in, and and these families, like, really shelter them. They take them to hockey, and they take them home, and they teach them their, their school lessons at home, and they make sure they eat their meals and go to bed on time. There's really no social life. And so now all of a sudden you're 19, 20 years old and you're being thrust into a situation where you're being paid $800,000 a year and you're living on your own and you have total freedom. And it's like, holy hell, this is what I've been missing for the last eight, nine years of my life. And so sometimes that kind of stuff affects your play. And so that's why certain guys take a little bit longer to develop than others. Now, it's going to be interesting. I'm sure one of the questions you're going to ask me tonight, Russ, is going to be about Flyers also recalling Oscar Lindblom. Ding, um, ding, 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 ding. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so he's being called back up tonight. Now everybody's going to sit there and say, finally, they're finally calling this guy up. But there, there's a two-fold thing for this. One, I bet we're going to hear tomorrow that there's an injury in the lineup. There's a forward who is hurt, and that's why Oscar Lindblom is being called up. And my guess is, is that it's somebody – on the top three lines because if it was a fourth line guy, they wouldn't be calling up Lindblom. They would call up Goulburn or Vecchione or, you know, more of a gritty kind of player. So it's somebody who they look at as like a scoring type. Um, so I think that's the reason he's being called up uh, more so than anything else. So I, I, we, we should be tempering that a little bit because – you know it's not like there's something they are saying well finally you know this guy he should have been up here all along the flyers think he's he's going to be there but remember he came over from europe this is his first year playing in north america adjusting to playing on a smaller ice surface adjusting to playing against more physical players you know this is now a job this is not a game this is these guys are being paid this is their livelihood there's a lot to learn and it's sometimes these kids just aren't ready. And if anybody thinks Oscar Limbaum's going to come in here, play a handful of games and light the world on fire, they probably have another thing coming because it's not, it's, it's unlikely. I, can it happen? Sure. We saw it with Ghost a couple years ago, right? But how many times do, do young players get called up and do nothing? And then you have to send them back down again. I, I think that that's more likely than not. So I, I would just be careful what you wish for because young kids come up and they make mistakes. And right now expectation for this flyers team because of how well they're playing is they're going to keep winning and they're going to make the playoffs. And if you have a young kid come in and make a mistake, then what?
0: I will not have you besmirch the name of Oscar Lindblom on this podcast. (laughs) The same Oscar Lindblom who last year had 47 points in the SHL who had 14 points in 20 playoff games. How dare you, sir? Um, for those for those who haven't been following uh to your point about him playing his first year in North America um as of recording this podcast tonight uh nothing is going to change in these stats uh Oscar Lindblom on the season has 16 goals uh 18 assists for a total of 32 uh, 34 points uh, oh, wow. in 54 games with lehigh valley that's that's pretty good stuff and and he was a guy that i thought was definitely on their radar to make this the to make the team at least at, at part like uh, maybe the earlier part of the preseason and then he seemed to fall off and fall out of favor with uh with the coach but lindbaum if nothing else like i get excited anytime there's there's a prospect i feel like i always say on this on this podcast that like so many of the, the storylines with each of these teams overlap. And if you're a fan of the the Sixers, the Flyers, the Phillies, the, the Eagles, and even the Union, so many of these concepts of, well, what are expectations for the season? Like, uh, you know, in, in a, a later section of, of this show, uh, we'll be talking to, uh, to Bob, who writes for the website, and I think that's like one of the things that we were gonna kind of get at is, you know, in in this Philly season, there there shouldn't be any expectations. If you if you have some younger guys play to get some reps, it's not the worst thing. It's get, like you were kind of saying, like getting caught up on what it is to play at this you know, with the speed of the game and the pressure and everything. It, it was the same thing for the, you know, in some ways for the Sixers. I think it was in it was similar for was in in the case of the Eagles, it was trial by fire for Halapulavati Vaitai and Isaac Samalo and even Stephen Wisniewski. Like, some of these guys, like, when, when you don't know exactly what expectations are supposed to be, like, if you're being realistic, I think in, in a lot of cases it's worthwhile having a guy up. So, while I, I get your point about needing to adjust to the league and needing to adjust to playing in North America, I guess this kind of brings me back to something that I, I've just found inexplicable and, and kind of indefensible from a distance, and that's Travis Sanheim's omission from any regular playing time with the uh, with the Flyers this year. A guy like uh, Andrew McDonald, who had to be carried around, his dead corpse had to be carried for a season, practically, by Ivan Provorov. I get it. he's He's got a huge cap number. Maybe he provides good veteran leadership. And, like, as a third pair defenseman, like, I'm not that upset with Andrew McDonald. But somebody needs to explain to me where Dave Haxtall's head has been. That Brandon Manning, who is at best, I think, like a seventh defenseman, a nice press box piece, somebody who could maybe grab the owner a, a box of popcorn at intermission. I don't understand why Brandon Manning gets gets regular minutes with this team. And a guy like Sanheim had to sit for what was it, nine or 10 straight games in the box and and like further further compounding this. Is the fact that when Ron Hextall had been asked about why Sanheim wasn't playing and is he happy about it, Hextall like gave the the quote, "God, I wish I had it in front of me." But like Hextall said something to the effect of, "Well, I'm not too happy that he's you know not playing, but the coaches aren't happy that he's playing. It you know it's just kind of out of our control. You employ you employ a coach, you can tell the coach, Hey dude, uh, get Sandheim in, take Brandon Manning.'" Plant him in the box next to me. Life will be good. Let's see what the kid can do. Is Travis Sanheim that much of a defensive liability that there is that like he is that much worse than having Brandon Manning? I don't get it. Please make okay, sense so, of it.
2: So here's here's how I'm going to and I, I hate to do this because it makes it sound like I'm defending the team. But oh, no. um, uh, yeah, oh, no. so well, here, here we go. Well, thank so, you,
0: Anthony, for being on the podcast today. Yeah. <laughs> We're just
2: going to go ahead. No, it's fine. Um, let, me, let me say this from the beginning because uh, you, you, we talked about Lindblom. First of all, the, the yeah, you want to see him up here, but you got to remember the difference with hockey is it's it's not like all twelve forwards play the same kind of role. The Flyers view Lindblom as a top six, of kind of forward. They really would rather not him play third, fourth line minutes because that's a different role, and he he's not that kind of player. Um, so that's can why I stop we,
0: you there for a second? Before,
2: uh, yeah, why? yeah,
0: but why? Because that, this, that's what I don't get. Because like when the season started and the fourth line actually looked like three guys who actually knew how to play hockey, and we didn't have to like
2: listen to the Broad Street Bullies' adage of old, it felt like yeah. they were
0: running four lines that could actually score. I don't, I don't, I don't get it.
2: But they were, but they really weren't running four lines that could actually score. They were running a fourth line that was competent, no question about that. Um, and they were playing uh, Lawton, Raffle, and Lear together, uh, the Honeybees as they were being called um they actually but I mean if you look at them are they really like a, a you know Michael Roffle as great as the, as great as that line was in the beginning of the season went 21 games without a point to start the year so really were they going to score a lot I mean you know, combined I think they have 24 goals for the year I mean three guys in 150 games I mean that's not a lot so it's not saying that they're not NHL quality players they certainly are but you have to understand that, Playing third and fourth line roles are are you're, you're you're out there to do different things than your top scoring lines are. There's a reason why every team in hockey the most offense comes from your top two lines because they they are the lines you want out there in situations where you have offensive zone faceoffs when you have an opportunity to match up against uh, a weaker defensive pairing. Um, so there's all kinds of you know in game strategy things in hockey. That for four words, at least, um, I think that that makes certainly makes more sense. Now let's look at the defense because I think this is where, where you're trying to make a. I, I think you make a better argument because there's no question that at the beginning of the season or at least even halfway through the season, it didn't make sense to have Travis Sandheim sitting in the press box and Brandon Manning or even I mean, nobody mentions Ratko Gudis. I think Gudis. Is lower on the totem pole for me than Andrew McDonald. Um, I think that that third pairing is not good. And there was a, there was a time when I sat there and said, "Well, gee, why is not Travis Sandheim in this lineup? Why is he sitting in the press box? If he's going to be here, he should be playing." Ultimately, they determined that there was a lot of things that he was doing that was not that was not right for the NHL, and he they didn't want him to continue to struggle with those bad habits. So the mis- there was a mistake there. The mistake was letting him sit in the press I mean, heck, Travis Sanham and I were getting um, hot chocolates together every second period, you know, intermission. And is we, he a mini marshmallows
0: he, kind of guy? No, does he have the marshmallows?
2: No, no I don't have that. The, the Flyers <laughs> press box is too damn cheap to have mini marshmallows
0: does the flyers press box do they mix it with milk is it a is it a hot water situation <laughs> inquiring minds water.
2: want to know oh no, hot,
0: hot water, no. That's all, yeah. yeah. that's no, like no, no. that's like emergency uh hot chocolate <laughs> at a youth soccer game you can't that's what, do that guess what even that's what it even, like brenda, even brenda even <laughs> brenda whose son doesn't even play she at least brings the milk and heats it up on a hot plate good god oh Confires? it's terrible I,
2: i'll tell you what i'll tell you what for as good as for as well as the flyers treat people and the fans and their players and even the media i mean they really do take care of the media the press box at wells fargo center is the skimpiest when it comes to snacks and food they have bad popcorn that doesn't have good butter they have uh, all they have is junk candy, like you know, Skittles and Reese's Pieces and M and M's. Okay, I, was, I thought you were gonna I thought you were gonna throw some shade at Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. We were gonna have no, an issue. no. Was, if they had real, I was real gonna peanut pull a Braun Cups,
0: Strowman and tell you to catch these hands. Like that was gonna yeah. be an issue, but okay. Reese's <laughs> oh, Pieces, have, weird,
2: yeah, yeah. Just just junky candy, and then they have um, Jumbo Pretzels, which aren't even real soft pretzels. They're kind of just the mass produced kind um, okay. they just sit in that and rotate in that heated stove thing. And that's mm. it. That's all. That's mm. all they offer up there. I mean, you go to any other press box in the league, and there's hot dogs, and there's you know, I mean, there's there's real food. <laughs> there's, in Chicago, they put out like sushi, and it's crazy the kind of stuff Chicago? that they. Chicago. Yeah, the the, the man what? house on Madison is is the best what? press press box food by far. Wow. By far. Um, I, but we're getting a little off topic here. <laughs>
0: anyway. Look, I don't know if anything is off topic at this point. It's
2: fine. <laughs> um anyway no but so that made like it made sense to me that that they needed to get him playing they felt like they that he was going to um continue to struggle doing the things he was doing and he needed some more some more refinement so they sent him down to the phantoms and look you look at the way he's playing down there he's playing great i mean they're like nine one and three since he's been down there he's playing 25 minutes a night he's really good for that level so it's obvious that he is better than AHL. He's probably ready for the NHL. The thing of it is, at this juncture now, as well as the team is playing, they don't want to break up what they have. And even though you could sit there and say, oh, my God, you mean to tell me you can't replace Brandon Manning? Oh, my God, you can't tell me you can't replace Radko Gudis or Andrew McDonald? The fact of the matter is, is they're playing good. They have the best record in hockey since December 3rd. So why why would you change what's working? And so that's why they're not doing it. I'll tell you what, if the Flyers suddenly go in the tank a little bit and lose you know, five or six in a row, I would not be surprised to see uh, Travis Sandheim back up here playing again. But I think that that's, what they're, that's what they're riding right now. And they'd rather let Sandheim play in the AHL than sit in the press box. I'm dead on the inside now.
0: I mean, like, I, th- I think you, you kind of made the p- I, Jesus. So, okay. So Sandheim has, has proven that he plays above the level of what the AHL is. Yeah. But, we, but we can't find him time because the team has managed to get onto a bit of a hot streak, and we cannot afford to break up the, the, the blossoming chemistry that's, that's around Brandon Manning. That, that to me just doesn't make sense. I mean, uh, like flyers teams, flyers teams in playoff runs. Like I always go back. My I think my favorite, my favorite one was the Stanley Cup run in in, in 2010. Right, like yeah. it felt like it felt like every so many games or every series you were getting somebody back. You were getting back what Gagne at one point. I think you got was it Carter came back. Uh, Carter uh, was hurt was after Br- the, play. Br- Br- back
2: in the Montreal series. Uh, it Carter just was felt- out. There. For the first two rounds.
0: Yeah. And so it just felt like you always kept getting a guy back, but like you're winning games, you're winning playoff series, but you don't make the same argument for that. Now, I get it. Those guys were established NHL players and they were guys that you needed. They were dynamic players. But the fact that,
2: like, that's, I think it's. Travis Sandheim (sighs) is not a difference making player right now. If he was a difference making player and they were keeping him out of the lineup, then I think your argument would be 100%. But the fact is, is he's not. Right now, if you bring him back into the lineup, all, all you're doing is saying, okay, develop for us in the middle of a playoff race. That's what you're saying. And so you run, you're basically running the risk of it not working. Um, and, and, and would the fans be okay with that? Maybe. Sh- sure, they might. But is the team okay with that? The team wants to make the playoffs. They haven't missed the playoffs for two straight in consecutive years for um, almost 30 years now. So like they you know there's there's a real you know push with that franchise right now to get into the playoffs this year, and I think that that's they'll sit there and say you know what we'll let Travis Sanheim be on this blue line to start the 2018 19 season, but right now we want to make sure we get in the playoffs.
0: But see, I think therein lies the problem because if you end up missing the playoffs and you've now missed you know what could have been half a season of getting a kid like Sanheim minutes, you've now essentially wasted that on you know brandon manning having having time in what ended up being a failed playoff run yeah, i get man, it. it like we're, we're gonna we're gonna disagree on this but like no, I,
2: no, but I, he, he played 35 games it's not like it's not like Sandheim hasn't played at all he did play 35 games which for a rookie defenseman who's 20 years old when you really look at it it's really not that bad i mean defensemen don't usually develop in the nhl until they're you know 25 26 years old so to be 20 years old and, and playing 35 games at the NHL level, that's that's not a bad first first season.
0: What are the defensive pairings right now? I know that there's been the debate on whether or not you should break up Ghost and Provorov.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, they're playing great together. So I, I guess, I mean, I was one of the people who wanted to split them up. Because I thought that Robert Haig played better with Bear than he does with Andrew McDonald. Um and Could that, that just have anything
0: to do with the fact that it's Andrew well,
2: freaking McDonald? Well, yeah, because they, well, here's the difference. So Andrew McDonald is is a better second guy on the pair, and when he's playing with Robert Haig, he's being asked to be the first guy on the pair, and that does not that does not bode well for the way he plays. When you had McDonald playing with Provorov, he was even though he was playing bigger minutes, Provorov was the first guy on the pair, so McDonald didn't look as bad. You see what I'm saying? And, and Go- ghost was the first guy with Hague. And so Hague didn't look, bad, look as bad. I think that, so I think I would, I would play him the other way around. But again, when you're winning and it's going as well as it's going and Provorov and Bear each have 10 goals and Gossespierre is among the, the scoring leaders for defensemen in the NHL. Why would you change it? And, and, and that's a, that's a fair argument back at, me, you know, and, you know, until it fails and I can sit there and say, see, I told you so, the Flyers are right. And and just like I didn't think that they'd get themselves back into the playoff race. Well, guess what? They have. The Flyers are right, and I've been wrong. Uh, we'll see how it ultimately ends up. But for now, that's the way it is.
0: Some interesting stuff going on in Flyers land. Uh, if, you, if you had to say right now, do they make the playoffs?
2: What, what do you think? Yeah, and more so... Not because I think that, oh, oh my God, they they finally figured out how good of a team they are. I mean, I always felt that they were right on the borderline, um, and they were, they were close to being a uh, playoff team. They were going to always be on that bubble. Um, but more so because I think that the teams around them have kind of collapsed. I mean, the Rangers went in the tank completely. Columbus can't get out of their own way right now. The Islanders' defense is terrible. Carolina is a team that I really like a lot. Another real young up and coming team, um, but they just qu- haven't quite gotten to where the Flyers are just yet. Um, and the Devils kind of fell back to earth. So really, it became you know Pittsburgh and Washington are the two better teams, and the Flyers happen to be right there. So um, yeah, I mean, it has it surprised me, yes, but at the same time, I don't necessarily think it's because the Flyers suddenly became. Figured it out and became a really good team. I think a lot of teams in the Eastern Conference kind of fell back.
0: All right, that's fair. Fair points. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, hey, you know, if nothing else, it's been an interesting run so far. And what was it like two weeks ago? The Flyers and the or two, three weeks ago, the Flyers and the Penguins were both bottom dwellers,
2: and now they're both what two and three in the in yeah. the net, right? Uh, like yeah. It's, yeah. Hockey's well, a crazy it, game the, but the, like the the, fun, the funny thing is Russ when they played I think it was January 4th or January 5th they played a game at the Wells Fargo Center they were in 7th and 8th place and now here we here we are 6 weeks later and they're in first and third place and it's crazy
0: It's nuts although and I mean in fairness the Penguins have guys that uh you just shouldn't not win with right like it right. it's hard it would be a a Cataclysmic, uh, uh, God, what's the word I'm looking for? It would be a massive failure of the utmost to have a team that has Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and Phil Kessel, and and you can't
2: make the playoffs. That's well, and that's, and not only that, I, I can't think of of all the teams that have won back to back Stanley. I mean, Stan, there have teams, there have been teams who've won the Stanley Cup who have missed the playoffs the next year, but I don't think it's ever been that a team's won consecutive cups and then missed the playoffs the next year. So you know, the Penguins were like just kind of hanging out there. And we're like, oh, my God, are they going to be the first team to ever do this? You had to assume that they were going to figure it out at some point. And right now, I think of anybody in the NHL, I think there's if you look at like, who's what team's playing the best hockey in, in, in the NHL, it, to me right now it's the Penguins, and there's no one else even close. I think that that's how well they're playing right now and, and how tough of an out I think they're going to be at this point moving forward. It's amazing that for
0: their mascot being a uh, a bird that can't fly, they seem to seem to fly their way up the standings and and win cups. Yeah. It's incredible. Hey, you know what? It, is it possible the Flyers won the Stanley Cup? Uh, it's probably like a non-zero percentage chance. It, it there's a percentage somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, they, was- they, I mean, the Eagles won the Super Bowl, so like anything's possible at this point. You I just, brought this. Just I get brought, in. Yeah, I mean, I brought this up in. Uh, in the LeBron James um, Instagram post thing, like weirder things have happened, right? Like the Philly signed Carlos Santana, the, uh, the, the Flyers have actually played some young guys, uh, the the eagles won the super bowl the sixers have able have been able to like sign free agents and and convince like a guy like marco bellinelli to play with them and the philadelphia union spent a million dollars of the league's money to acquire a winger like crazy things have happened this year why can't the flyers make the playoffs and go on a stanley cup run but whatever
2: it's no, totally possible it totally it, that's the beautiful thing about the nhl i mean if you go back and look season after season there's always one team, sometimes two teams, that make this great run, and you're like, where did this come from? I mean, you talk about 2010 being your favorite year. I mean, just think that they were three games before the end of the season, they were not getting in, and then all of a sudden they got in. Then they were down 3 nothing to Boston, and they come back and make that miracle, and they get all the way to the finals. So anything can really happen. I mean, the LA Kings won the Cup as an eight seed. Um, you know, Nashville make the run to the final last year, although they were a little bit better than maybe their seed might have indicated. Um, the fact is, is that it happens in hockey, and this Eastern Conference, with Tampa and Pittsburgh, is really wide open. And so maybe you know, if you finish second or third in the division, you know, can the Flyers beat the Capitals in the playoff series? I think so. You know, maybe somebody pulls an upset and knocks off Pittsburgh. Now all of a sudden, can the Flyers get to the conference finals? Sure. You know, I mean, any anything can happen and you just got to get in there and see what happens. And so, you know, all credit to them for, for getting back into this. This is I, I never saw it coming. I thought this team was dead in the water and I still not a big fan of the coach. I don't think he's a very good coach, but I've seen teams with not very good coaches go far into playoffs before. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it plays out.
0: The fire hacksaw and fire Brett Brown chance have uh, seemed to die down a little bit. Yeah, Interesting. I, I, was, I Inter- was never
2: a fire Brett Brown guy, but uh, I, well, I don't know. I, yeah,
0: <laughs> I, I, I don't really know all that many people who are uh, singing the praises of Hackstall at this point or at any point. But uh, they uh, it, look, they're winning in spite of their coach in that point. And that's fine. Yeah. Uh I think that's probably a, a good spot to stop. Um, Anthony, uh, any parting words, parting shots?
2: <laughs> parting shots. Yeah, go ahead. I, no, I who am I taking a shot at? I mean, if, if the team was struggling, I would, I would take a parting shot, but I can't right now. I, I got to sit here and I got to, you know, I got to eat the humble pie. I mean, I was the one who, I was the first writer who came out and said, maybe they should fire the coach. I was the, I was a guy who said that there's no way they could sustain this and come back and make the playoffs. And now here we are. And it's, they still might not. Make the playoffs. I mean, they're, they're, they're still only, you know, five points up. But the fact of the matter is, is that you know, they're proving me wrong. So until until then, I'm not going to take any shots at anybody.
0: All right. Uh, by the way, has there been an, any more gutsy call going into a season than moving Giroux back to wing?
2: That was a great decision. I, it really was. Turned out to be brilliant. Um, yeah, I mean, really, really, I mean, it, you know, it made Sean Couturier a big-name player. Now, I, I got to tell you, I will be a little. I got to be a little leery because if there's an injury to somebody on their top six, and the Flyers aren't saying now, and they keep saying we'll we'll update the injury situation tomorrow, that usually means it's something that's not just a keep you out for one game kind of thing. That could that could throw a big. Wrinkle into things if they if they lose a Couturier or a or a Giroux or a Voracek or Simmons or you know Konechny for not
0: Konechny. You know, he's he's playing well he he's, he's done being great.
2: benched he's done you
0: know sitting up in the Travis Sanheim Memorial press <laughs> box
2: seat like, you see think about that think about that for a second I and I, mean, I don't want to go go back into the same thing we already talked about but think about that for a second Konechny went through last year what. Sandheim's going through this year and now look at what it's look at what it's done for Konechny's game so maybe there is there is a little something there to that.
0: You're starting to sound like Mike Sealski. I don't like this I don't,
2: uh, Please don't compare me to Sealski
0: Well Sealski and I got into this got into this Twitter debate earlier in the year uh, because uh, you know it, it,
2: whatever no, People Cielski, from a distance like, a, I like Sealski, he's a friend of mine the fact of the matter is, though, but listen. This, I, this I is about th- to go
0: Stephen A. Smith. He's a close personal friend of mine. He's the, god, he's the godfather of my children. No, ahead. no,
2: he's a good friend of mine. I don't like his take on hockey. I, I think he is far off most of the time. So, but if you compare me to TLC on hockey, I get a little nervous. Yeah. I like his stuff with football and baseball and basketball, but not necessarily hockey. I think he's a little He's not a hockey guy, Bo. Yeah, Got I know. It. I know, it drives me crazy. <laughs> Interesting. All right,
0: I think I think we might actually call it there now, All unless right. we have one one last thing to jump in on. But I think we're good. Okay. Um, we're good. Anthony Sanfilippo, he covers the uh, the Flyers on the beat for Crossing Broad. Uh, you can follow him at uh, what is it? Ant San Philly. That's A N T S A N Philly. If you don't know how to spell Philly, then you're not a
2: true Philly fan. Yeah, I and mean, there's there's actually a story behind that, but we'll share, we'll share that another time if you want. All right, sounds good. Uh, because there's a real story behind why that's my uh, unfortunately why that is my uh, Twitter
0: handle. It's unfortunate. Yes, it's unfortunate. Is it like a downer? Because like people are no. going to listen to this on their way to work or
2: something. Like, right, I don't so want to be a downer. I, I'll, I'll tell it real quick. I mean, yeah, you kind uh, of you, you have to tell. I, it I now. have to at this point. So I built my own Twitter following. I mean, I worked for a suburban newspaper, right? So I built my own Twitter following by trying to be like the one beat guy who interacted with fans. Because when, when I joined Twitter nine years ago, nobody else in, in this area, as far as sports writers are concerned, were doing it. Um, they kind of decried the notion of social media. So I built my own Twitter following. I had, you know, 10,000 people following, whatever the case was at the time. And when I left the newspaper business to actually go to work for the Flyers, they actually asked me to change the name of my Twitter handle to be something that tied in with the team. So I did. And I, I changed it at the time. I got verified uh, while I worked for the Flyers. So this was great. Well, when I got laid off after NBC came in and, and NBC decided that they didn't really need a web department, that the website should be a function of public relations, and got rid of the web people, Um they tried to stick, the team actually tried to keep my Twitter account, saying that they owned it. What? And yes, and I got into a big argument with the team over my Twitter account, and they're like, "Well, we own the name." I said, "Well, then I'll change the name." I said, "But it's you allowed mine." To say what the name was? Uh, it, it was the name of the blog that I did. Uh, what the hell was it called? Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I forget what it was called. It was just the name. It was the name of the of the blog on flyerscom I forget what it was called. But anyway, um, so, so yeah. So, But the, the thing of it was, was that it was like, it really, I was unable to use my Twitter account for like five, six months because it was left up there to be determined who was going to be controlling the Twitter account. And ultimately, it was settled without having to go a legal route. Um, they did give it back to me. All I did, as I had to for one full year, I had to leave... Uh, on my description, uh, not affiliated with the Philadelphia Flyers. That's all I had to put on there, and then it was it was good to go. So, um, so yeah, so it was kind of depressing that I mean, and I had to like, well, I couldn't go back to what my original one was because someone else had already taken it, and so I was like, well, I got it. What am I going to use? And so I ended up having to make up this lame ass thing and went with ants and Philly, and that's what it ended up being, all because of the Flyers. Who you now cover on Ooh. the beat? Yeah, and I'm still friends with everybody down there because the the people who got rid of me are no longer involved with the organization, which is crazy. Anyway. Boom. We're yeah. still here. <laughs> I'm still here. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, go. that's good. All right. I hope, so I hope that was uh, good I, stuff for you, Russ. Yeah, that was that was that was lovely. So uh, uh, next up, we will be talking to uh, to Bob about the Phillies. So hang in there. Crossing Broadcast is brought to you by Carlino's Market in Ardmore and Westchester, where you can go and get your artisanal meats, cheeses, your your pasta, pizza, get some tomato pie, uh, go in and get some of your favorite Italian goods, pre-made meals, you can get some made for you on the spot, fantastic pizza, fantastic pasta, uh, go in and get your mozzarella di bufalo. go get some soppressata, go get some capicola, um, swing on in, grab all All of the stuff at Carlino's, it is well worth your money. Uh, Again, they have locations in Ardmore and Westchester. We've done live podcasts of both. Hope to do some of those again soon. Carlino's Market in Westchester and Ardmore, where you should go to get all of your Italian goods. Uh, Save yourself the hassle one night this week and let Carlino's make dinner for you or lunch and breakfast. Let them make all your meals. It doesn't matter. I can guarantee you that if you go to Carlino's for your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or at least lunch and dinner, and then eat leftovers for breakfast, you will be happy and healthy. Uh, that might not be an actual uh, thing from the uh, the FDA. I don't know if we can say that that's confirmed, but you will be happy, guaranteed. Carlino's Market, we want to thank them for sponsoring the podcast. I'm now joined by, uh, by a man. I don't know what name he wants to go by. I don't know if he wants to go by an alias. But uh, he is a guy who writes for Crossing Broad, and he's going to be doing plenty of our coverage on the uh, fight. The Fightin' fills themselves, the Philadelphia Phillies. I'm going to let him introduce himself.
3: We, we could just go with Bob. I think Bob is okay, right? I mean, you know, I, the, the name kind of, I think it, people at this point are starting to be able to put together the, the full name, but leave a little element of mystery there, I guess.
0: I think that sounds good. All right, so Bob, we're, we'll call you if that is your real name. Uh, Bob is here. The Phillies are a team that I think a lot of us are kind of excited about. They, they to me, um, I used to be really big into following all of the minor league prospects. Um, and then somewhere along the line, I kind of fell off. So where guys like Kyle Drabeck were ones that I always wanted to protect and I, I didn't want to exactly see them get rid of Michael Taylor or Dominic Brown, that was about, I think, where I got out of it. And somewhere along the line, guys like Sixto Sanchez jumped up to the top or or close to the top of the uh, minor league pitching ranks. Is Jesse, I don't even know if Jesse Biddle's still in the minors. That's how out of touch I am at this point. But we do have some interesting guys, and I want to point out that In the spring of last year, when we were recording this podcast, I brought up the idea, it was a joke, but I brought up the idea of Tommy Joseph playing some third base for us this year, and he's been out taking grounders at third, so I'm very excited about that, but two guys that I was interested in seeing last year, even as early spring training, were J.P. Crawford and Scott Kingery. And now with the uh, signing of Carlos Santana, it kind of leaves a lot up in the air. It leaves a lot of question marks about how these guys are going to fit, how they're going to find time for guys like Cesar Hernandez. Are they going to get Scott Kingery up? Where's J.P. Crawford going to play? Santana's going to be in at first base, which means Reese Hoskins goes to the outfield. I have a million questions, Bob. Help me make sense of it.
3: Uh, yeah, it, it's been an interesting offseason. I mean, this team has been out of contention now since 2012, and it's been a slow and very long climb back. And I know this year there's some optimism, you know, they're for the first time in a few years, you know, trying to send a message out down there that, you know, hey, if if everyone takes steps forward, we can be competitive. And I, I just don't know. I would have bought into that idea if, if there was a little bit more action um over over the course of the offseason obviously the Santana signing is a big step forward it really helps a young lineup to have a veteran presence there a guy that you know not to be cliche but is a professional hitter he knows how to work counts get counts in his favor and there's a lot that can be learned by those younger guys and I think from an offensive standpoint this is going to be a very exciting team when you watch guys like Reese Hoskins and you see what J.P. Crawford can do over a full season um you know I I like Odubel Herrera I'm a Herrera guy Uh, Jorge Alfaro has a lot of offensive intrigue, and so there's a lot of parts on this team that that I'm excited about. Um, but when you look at the pitching, and, and this is we'll get into this a little bit about Matt Klentak, uh it's just a very incomplete picture with just it's littered with question marks. And I, I'm probably trying to emphasize to people that are like, well, what do you think about the Phillies this year? Can they compete for a wild card or maybe make it weird late into August, early September? What do you think? And I say, well you know they've got to do something to add to the pitching staff because right now it's just not good enough and and for that reason you know try to temper the expectations a, a little bit
0: yeah it makes sense i so going into the season we i think we know at least what a few of the uh the starters are going to look like in the rotation i guess that's a good place to start we all know about Aaron Nola we know about Ikoff. we know about uh Vince Velasquez who honestly i'm i'm still not sold that Velasquez should be a starter and and shouldn't just be converted to, you know, a, a potential setup man or a closer role. I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but I'm always interested in the battle for the fourth and fifth spots. I don't know, and and again, like I hate the fact that I'm so out of touch with this. I don't know if the fourth and fifth spots are guys that we're going to be looking at that are you know um, you know long tenured countrymen bouncing around the league, or are we going to actually look at seeing legitimate competition between you know two or three of the top prospects or are we even looking at somebody who like just happens to be a lifer at AAA. Like what do you think is going to shake out here? What what can we expect? Who are some names that we should be looking for for the fourth or fifth starter on this on this team coming up?
3: If if Klintak doesn't do anything uh, between now and opening day, uh, I think you're right. I mean, you obviously have Nola at the top of things there, and, and he's coming off a, a really strong season. Um, there was a little bit of concern about him really going into last year, but he, he quieted those concerns. And then you mentioned Jared Eikhoff and Vince Velasquez. You know, the, the problem with this picture right now is that those two guys are are fine if they're your four and five starters. Or if you, even if you knew that that Eikhoff and Velasquez were going to hit their ceilings, if they were going to have those good seasons, you could deal with some of the uncertainty that you would have at the four and five positions in that rotation. But when you look at the fact that each of those guys, I mean, Eikhoff coming off a, an injury shortened season a year ago, he was very inconsistent. Uh, and Velasquez, you know, he wows you, and, and then he comes back, and he's absolutely infuriating. He's got 90 pitches with with one out in the fourth inning. And so where they're at, I mean, there's just not a ton of upside uh, amongst all of their, you know, options. So when, when I look at it, I can go in, and I know that you had said you have a little concern about Velasquez. Where they're at, they can afford to take risks with high-ceiling guys. So, this is an unfinished product. I I don't think that they're a playoff team. I want to know for sure that he cannot be a starter, and and so I'm willing to go into this season and give him one more thorough look to prove that, and and if he cannot, then, you know, I think he does profile well as a potential reliever. Um, Eikhoff is a guy that that a lot of people like. Uh, I I just, I don't know. I I think he's like a four or five starter, but but on this team, you know, he's probably your two or three, uh, the way that he slots in, and from there, it gets really uh, murky. Uh, The guy that I like that I'm the highest on is Nick Pavetta uh, for the similar reasons to to Velasquez strikeouts big arm uh, you can throw in the mid-90s had a 9.5 strikeout per nine ratio a year ago he's the guy I think out of all the Ben Lively's and Mark Leiter juniors and Tom Eshelman's and Jake Thompson's and, and just these guys that are kind of like minor league swingman, long reliever fifth starter options I think he's the guy that has the highest ceiling so coming out I think that he's he's almost as close of a lock as you can get in that group and then from there it's really a crapshoot, it's take your pick I mean I, I would lean at this point just because he's the highest profile guy uh, he was part of the Hamels deal I would say that Jake Thompson who who was a mess last year for uh, Lehigh Valley, 22 starts ERA over 5 uh, almost 50 walks in 118 innings. I mean, he was a mess. Uh, he came up at the end of the season. He was decent. But uh, I just think from a profile standpoint, he, he probably is the inside track at the fifth starter over guys like Leiter and Lively and, and, and that type of, uh or those type of guys.
0: So let's move on to, uh, to some position players. So I think... Michael Franco is a bit of an enigma. Nobody knows what to expect from him. He was a guy that a couple of years ago, people were going out and buying the jerseys, thinking that Franco was going to be the next big thing. Crushed a bunch of homers. And then last year, it just had a year that he looked kind of disaffected. He he didn't appear to be into the game. And where a guy like Odubo Herrera often, you know, gets himself in, in trouble for looking like he's, you know, kind of uh Getting himself involved in bonehead plays, getting called out by Mike Schmidt as being somebody who can't be a leader because he speaks Spanish, which apparently is you know a handicap or something. Um, You've you've got this kid that once showed promise, but realistically seemed to be a liability at least at the plate and showed little to no discipline. Um, Is there any reason whatsoever to think that Franco should? uh even be in the mix at third base or is it something that you think that we should be seeing a Kingery or a JP Crawford kind of moving out there and getting some reps
3: the, one of the things that i i kind of questioned with Matt Clentac over the course of the offseason is 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 he being patient is he a guy that's really trying to to read a, an evolving market is he a guy that um knows that he has some valuable assets and he doesn't want to trade them for pennies on the dollar you know and i that's, I think, what the optimists would say as they look at Matt Clentak and what was a fairly inactive offseason. Um, you know, however, you look at a guy like Cesar Hernandez, hits 294 last year, 793 OPS, really has a good bat for the second base position, seemingly with Scott Kingery coming up. Um, you, you would think that he's expendable. You would think that that's a fairly valuable commodity. Hernandez is under team control through 2020, I believe. And he's only going to make $5.1 million this season. You look at the free agent market. Teams don't want to go out and spend crazy money on second-tier free agents. Uh, and, and Hernandez really had a lot of value heading into this offseason. And the fact that he's still here says to me one of two things. Either Matt Klintak lacks creativity. Uh, I called him creativ- uh, creatively inept uh, in an article I wrote last week. I, I think that's a question that we have to start looking at now. Um, but you could argue that the reason that Hernandez is here is because there is so much uncertainty at third base right now. I mean, Michael Franco has all of the tools in the world. And, and similar to a guy like Velasquez, I think that you let him try to figure it out over the first quarter of this season because... The ceiling is so high, and and again, this team I don't think is an 85-90 win team, and I think it would be foolish not to allow this guy with all of these tools, who's still relatively young, to go out there and have one more shot to figure it out. Now, you have a hell of a contingency plan if he doesn't, because then that's where guys like Scott Kingery get involved, uh, who won't start, I I don't think... uh, on the 25-man roster out of spring training, I think that they'll want to try to keep him down there for a couple of weeks, have his uh, free agency begin in 2024 by keeping him down there. I just think that uh, it, it's a situation where you let this guy you know, try to sink or swim here, and, and if it doesn't work out, then you may move uh, Hernandez to, to shortstop. Potentially uh, slot, uh, you know, Kingry at second or third. Uh, Hernandez can play a little third. Those guys all kind of become interchangeable at that point. Um, So I think that that's a a nice backup option to have there, but I, I can't tell you. I mean, you watch the guy play, you watch Franco play, and And he does things that amaze you. You see the raw power. Uh, You you see that he has gap power, consistent gap power, 30-35 home run potential, at times plays flashy defense, and then it just goes away. And it it doesn't just go away for a day or two. It goes away for 10 days. And then you'll see another flash. And so it's going to be very, very interesting. I think maybe one of the most important storylines in April and May of this season is going to be watching what he does out of the gate.
0: So, okay. Kapler is a guy. Gabe Kapler, the manager is a guy who seems to be big into sports science, big in analytics, and especially big into busting it on the base paths and really getting to it in the uh, in the gym, hitting the weights, and doing everything that you're expected to do as a major league player. So that in mind, do you think Michael Franco even has the mental makeup? I, this is maybe gonna paint you in a corner, but does Franco come off as a guy? who's going to benefit from this uh, this Kapler thinking? Or do you think he's a guy who might shrink under the pressure?
3: I mean, he does come across as aloof, but sometimes talent... You know, having such raw talent makes you look aloof when you really aren't. Um, You know, that's I think a hard question to answer, um, considering that he has not maximized his his results or his ability. Uh, You know, he hasn't cashed in on it. I I think getting a more aggressive voice, getting a more positive voice, uh, something that he's maybe not accustomed to to dealing with, cannot hurt him. Certainly, Uh, I don't think that he can really go down from here. So it'll be interesting to see if if Kapler and Franco mesh uh I I could see there being potential issues there but uh, you know perhaps he's able to get something out of him that he hasn't previously been able to you know to get from other managers uh the, the guy that I think actually is interesting is Carlos Santana we talked about having a veteran approach a guy that knows how to work counts put himself in favorable positions um I think that that's a guy that Franco is really going to look at and, and maybe lean on. And I think that there's a possibility that Santana can have a, a really positive effect on him. Uh, that was one of the things when they made the signing I said, well, this is interesting. You know, you, you don't know what's going to happen with Reese Hoskins. Obviously, they move him out the left field. But the other thing I thought to myself was, man, if there was a guy that I would want Franco to emulate, it, it really would be Santana. And, and there are similar power skills there. Um, and, and and so I think that there could be a real positive benefit from having him around.
0: So you mentioned that Reese Hoskins is going to have to move to the outfield because of the signing of Santana. And I don't know what it is. And and maybe it's just me being an idiot, but I worry about Hoskins being forced into the outfield playing a position that, uh, you know, I, I don't think he had a ton of experience playing at Um Why should fans believe that moving Reese Hoskins for the sake of having someone entrenched at first base is any better of an idea than what they did with Darren Ruff?
3: Uh, Yeah, I know that that Darren Ruff uh, had monstrous home run numbers, power numbers in the minor leagues. Uh, I don't believe that Reese Hoskins is is Darren Ruff. Uh, I think there are a lot less holes uh, in his swing. I think that there's less areas uh, that pitchers can attack Hoskins on a consistent basis and find a way to get him out. Uh, Hoskins has shown, as he's risen through the minor league levels, uh, an ability to adapt uh, regardless of how pitchers attack him. I, I think that people... Might overestimate what he is this season. If you're expecting 40 45 home runs and and for him to hit 280 or better, uh, I think that those are unfair and and probably unrealistic expectations for Reese Hoskins. But he's a very solid hitter. He's got a quiet swing, he he doesn't try to do too much at the plate, Um, makes good line drive contact, just has a real solid plan and a solid approach as a hitter. And I think that that's going to prevent prolonged slumps from him. Uh, I I don't know that he's an all-star this year. I I certainly don't think he is what you saw from mid-August onward uh, uh, last season, but do I think that this guy has 30-35 home run potential? Yeah, I I kind of expect him to do that, and and I think he's going to give you a lot of quality professional at-bats. I I think there's a lot to like there. And, you know, sometimes when you put a guy defensively out of their element, it can have an adverse impact in in other facets of their game. But I just don't foresee that. I think he's got the right um, mental makeup. I think he's got the right attitude. and, And though I don't expect him to be above average out there, I think that he'll give you you know, functional, uh, I would call it functional defense. I think that's probably, you know, playing it safe a little bit, but I would feel pretty good about Reese Hoskins. I think he's going to, you know, be a very good player here and, and has a chance to be a very good player for a very long time.
0: All right. So before I let you go, Bob, um, if, if fans were looking to see the Phillies make maybe a final push for a free agent, uh, there were a couple people on Twitter that had asked, uh, do you think there's any chance that they go out and at least make a play for Mike Musakis, to come in, I guess and play some third base or to give them I, I guess a solid contribution at third base. Do you think that's a possibility? One of the the guys that I've long kind of held the belief that they might, you know, try to make a, a final push for here, maybe on a um uh, a high salary per uh, per season on a short-term deal uh is Jake Arrieta. Is there a chance that the Phillies go in and at what number would you be um would you be comfortable?
3: As far as Mustakis goes, I mean, I I like the guy, and and again, good power there, uh, good player, very productive player, but I I don't think that he fits this team's needs. Uh, I think with Franco, with Kingery uh, coming, with Hernandez, with Crawford, and then you want to look forward and talk about the Manny Machados of the world. I just don't see them making a significant financial investment for an infielder at this point. I think the team has enough internal options and a lot of flexibility there uh, that that's not a realistic option for them. I mean, I would be absolutely floored if, if that was something that were to transpire at this point. As far as Jake Arrieta goes, I mean, it just depends what you what you believe. I mean, U. Darvish signs with the Cubs for, what, six years, $126 million, I believe. There were reports out there that the Cubs had offered Arietta similar money. Uh, He turned it down. If he wants six years, I don't think the Phillies are an option. Uh, but then again, I don't know that the market is going to allow for him to get five or six years. It really is going to depend on, on what Arrieta wants to do. I don't think he's going to take a one-year prove-it deal because there's really nothing left to prove, and, and he's already up there over 30. So that doesn't make a ton of sense. But if he wants to sign uh, you know, bigger annual money on a shorter-term deal, let's say three years 90 million, three years, 95 million. The Phillies have so many, you know, such vast financial resources and, and just little salary committed in the short term to this roster that it makes a lot of sense to me. It gives you a little bit more of a known commodity at the top of the rotation. You pair him, Arietta with Nola. All of a sudden, you know, if Eikhoff kind of bounces back and has a, a decent year and Velasquez hits a ceiling and then a guy like Pavetta, you know, comes up and makes a big big leap forward, then you're talking about the Phillies being competitive in, in 2018, playing meaningful games into August and September. But I just don't know. I, I look at the agent. I look at Scott Boris. I know what he wants. And I just don't know that he's going to take a loss on Arietta like that. And, and I don't know that Arietta is going to want to take that loss. And so it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. But the longer this goes on... And, I mean, where are we at? February 19th? If you would have told me a month ago, will Jake Arietta still be on the market? I would have said, hell no. But we're here. And the longer this goes on, the more uh, maybe it's false hope. But I think that there's reason to believe that the Phillies could, could jump into this thing and, and maybe land themselves at the top of the rotation arm heading in.
0: It is it is interesting because if you look at track right now, uh, in terms of salaries that the Phillies are committed to for the next few years, you know, when you hear the names like Manny Machado come up, you hear um, – uh, names like Bryce Harper, having long been connected with the Phillies as an as a potential destination in 2019, the Phillies only have 33 million dollars, roughly, committed to uh, current contracts, current guys on the roster. 20 million of that for the infield, and then five million for the outfield. Um, that seems nutty to me. I, like I said, I've been big on the concept of a 30 million per year deal for Jake Arrieta, 390. Three years, $90 million. Sounds pretty good to me. That still gives you flexibility in the uh, upcoming years. That if you want to make a major splash for a Bryce Harper or a Manny Machado, or heck, even both, although I-, I don't really know why you would do it. I think you have good infield depth, and I don't really know if either of those guys are poised to make a move to the outfield, uh, unless you're going to, like, I don't know, move Hernandez back out to the outfield or maybe like a, a Kingery or a Crawford, you know, make them a corner outfielder. Um, even adding one or two of those guys in, that only gets your payroll to probably somewhere in the hundred million range for 2019, which is still nowhere near where the uh, the payroll was for the Phillies when they were at their at their best in their prime. If you had to take a guess, uh give me a uh like a scale of one to ten. One is it's highly unlikely, and a ten is you're a hundred percent sure because you've talked to the agent. Where do you think either a Manny Machado or a Bryce Harper to the Phillies stands as of right now. If nothing were to change, if no big free agents were to sign this season, uh, that would, I guess, pretty much perc- you know, be a-, a Jake Arrieta. If they can't get Jake, where does a Machado or a Harper uh, signing land on a scale of one to ten likeliness? Likelihood.
3: Uh, it's, it's, uh, you're throwing all the good questions out here tonight. You know, first of all, let me just say, I don't think that Arietta precludes anything next year. You, you talk about the roster and, and where they're at financially. I mean, I don't think that there's, you know, you hand Jake Arietta a $30 million a year deal uh, in the short term. I don't think that really alters their uh, ability to go out and, and sign either one of those guys. I, I read a report earlier uh, about Harper. Uh, Apparently wanting 13 years, $500 million is something that got floated out there on Twitter earlier. Um, I I don't do that deal, and and I'm probably in the minority there. I know that there are a lot of people that say, you know what, screw it. Uh, This is a generational talent. I just don't, I don't think the Phillies are going to do that. I I just, I I don't, I don't get the sense that Bryce Harper is going to be here. So if you want me to quantify it on a one to 10 scale, I I would, I would say that, I mean, who wouldn't want Bryce Harper? So three or four, just because they have the the financial flexibility to enter that, that conversation and and not every team does, but there are a lot of teams out there that have been very frugal with their spending this season to set up and and take a run at these guys next year. So it's not like it's just, well, Hey, the Phillies have a lot of roster or, or financial, flexibility, so th- they'll be able to do it. They're not going to be competing with just one or two other teams. I mean, there are a handful of teams out there that can make a realistic run at him. And, and again, you know, th- when you look at the years and the money, I just don't know that that's something that I that I personally would do, but, but then again, maybe they have a different philosophy. As far as Machado goes, he's a guy that I thought made a lot of sense for them for a very long time. Uh, I don't think he's going to command uh, quite the commitment, both in terms of, of length and in terms of finance. But uh, a guy that I think that they probably really like uh I I would say that Machado is the more likely I I wouldn't put it higher than a five because then you're basically saying that it's it's more than likely you know more likely than not that they're going to sign him but um I think that he'll be in play for the Phillies I do I think that he would be the more likely target but but I could be wrong
0: on that the idea of teams with flexibility or trying to create more cap flexibility in a sport that doesn't have a cap oddly enough sounds a lot like the uh the LeBron James sweepstakes which uh you know, we know that that's going to happen on the NBA side of things. Plenty of teams are going to do what they do every year, which is clear out as much cap space as possible for the uh, the final opportunity to to woo him one more time. It will be interesting to see what the Phillies do. Uh, it's something where I I always get a little bit frustrated because baseball is the only sport um, where you can really outspend everyone else and buy yourself relevance or at least attempt to. And so while I guess part of me is torn that way where I want to see the Phillies spend themselves into at least being a potential contender in the NL East. I don't expect them to win the division, but I do expect them to not be basement dwellers. Uh, When you play a sport where, where there is no cap and you could potentially make yourself a middle of the road team. I don't think that's the worst thing. Baseball is a long season and I need to see some winning in the summer. God knows the union aren't going to give it to me. Any chance the Phillies shock the world and actually put together a a solid, like, near 500 record this summer.
3: Yeah, I mean, if if Franco bounces back, if Crawford takes a step forward, if Hoskins is what we think he can be... um, yeah, I think that the, it's a possibility. I I like Oduble Herrera. I know that a lot of people in the city kill him, but uh, you know he had a down year last year. He struggled and he hit over 280, had 59 extra base hits. I mean he he's a very very good top of the order hitter. Uh, this team offensively is going to be competent, probably a little bit better than competent. It just all comes down to the starting rotation. Uh, you know Tommy Hunter, Pat Neshek, uh, Hector Neris. They have good bullpen pieces. They're not lights out. It's not if you take a lead in the seventh inning, the game's over, but it's a decent bullpen. They have a lot of interesting young offensive pieces that I think can and probably will take a step forward, but the starting rotation is just so limiting. I mean, in order to win with what they have, Noel is going to have to be a top-ten pitcher. Eichoff is going to have to replicate his form of 2016. Velasquez is going to have to cash in, stay healthy, and and really realize his ceiling. Uh, And then Pavetta will have to do the same, and then they're going to have to get functional league average fifth starter production out of of whoever fills that spot you you go out and you you solidify the rotation with an Arietta, maybe a guy like Alex Cobb though I'm not as high on him Uh, then then I think it does become a realistic possibility but as it stands now if I had to pick a number uh, I don't think they're going to be a bad team by any stretch especially because this division is so weak Uh, the Marlins are a mess I'm not a big believer in what the Braves have the Mets are a very meh team. Uh, With a weak division, I I think they're a 75-78 to win team right now, uh, a little shy of 500. They go out and they get a piece, and they get off to a good start and start believing in themselves. With a young team, new manager, kind of quirky, I could see a scenario where they they are competitive, but they've really got to do something about the pitching. And if they don't, then I think that this is a year where you see a lot of positives, but it may not translate into competitive baseball late in the summer.
0: That didn't sound so negative. I guess to uh, to quote the great Lloyd Christmas from Dumb and Dumber, so you're saying there's a chance. I am
3: saying there's a chance. There is a chance.
0: All right. Uh, a big thanks to Bob, who writes for Crossing Broad. Be sure to check out his work. He covers a lot of different stuff uh, as the uh, baseball season is getting ramped up. You'll see him uh, covering anything from Nick Foles on Ellen. To uh, to breaking down Eagle storylines, he's he's contributed a ton to the site. Make sure you check out the stuff that he posts and uh, follow him on Twitter. Jeez, uh, you have so many different names that you use between Slack, but uh, follow him on Twitter at bw crossing broad. Bob, a big thanks. Any last words?
3: No, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, you know, what? Well, it's it's going to be an interesting season. I, I will say that. There's going to be a lot to look forward to and a lot
0: to talk about, so make sure you catch it on the site. Thanks, guys. And, of course, a huge thank you to Kevin, Anthony, and Bob for all coming on today. Um, and more than anything, a big thank you to all of you who listen. I know that it has been a really wacky schedule since the uh, Eagles won the Super Bowl. And uh, on behalf of Kyle and Adam, we wanted to thank you for sticking with us and uh, for making us part of your daily routine Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Uh, Kyle and Adam will be back on Wednesday. We'll hopefully be resuming our normal schedule. When when uh, we go onto Twitter and and I poke fun at Kyle for having a ton of shirt orders, um, I know he's grateful for them, but holy crap, guys. It is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Uh, the amount of people who have bought shirts, its it's fantastic, it's awesome. And uh, it's that kind of support that keeps the site and the podcast going. So um, keep that up, and we'll talk to you again on Wednesday.